Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Alf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Michael Rubinelli, Chief Gaming Op Officer at Wax Studio. Michael kickstarted his career in the gaming sector when he was still a kid by sneaking into a consumer electronics trade show and making an impression on the staff at the Electronic Arts kiosk. More than two decades later, Michael has built a robust resume and a respected reputation as a leader in the space. The Wax ecosystem currently has more than 23 million daily transactions and 500,000 daily unique visitors. Michael, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. That's a great intro. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. And that's all true. I snuck in and felt like I was getting away with something and didn't know what it was. And yet here we are. I love that intro. And I want to kind of start with your childhood and gaming, because in sure. another podcast, I heard you talking about the idea of taping a piece of thread to a quarter to get as many game oh. plays as possible. And, and I'm curious, like, how did retro arcade true. games impact you growing up? Well, I didn't have a lot of money, so I had to be resourceful. <laughs> right. And one of my friends said, you know, you can rig a coin op machine. If you take a piece of sewing thread and put a piece of scotch tape and tape it to a quarter, you can find the mech of the coin drop and just jiggle it on there. <laughs> and some machines were much harder than others. And eventually they have this technology that kind of do it. But you could, I did a uh, missile command, dig dug. I'm trying to think of all the ones that I played incessantly as a childhood just for free and just, and it, you felt like you, you get the ding, the ding, the ding. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to bounce it on there. And when I had enough, and I was looking around, people were like, what's that noise? I'm like, whoop. And I whipped the string out, and the quarter <laughs> fell into the drop box, and away we go. <laughs> yes. Uh, another one of my favorite stories that I can tell, because, you know, my mom will never hear this, and it doesn't matter now, but <laughs> she, we used to go shopping together, and there was a Galaga machine, you know, at, at one of the department stores we'd go to. And I knew about this exploit where you could play and you could get it into this broken kind of loop, right? Where it would never fire at you. And she said, well, how much do you need to play games? I'm like, oh, five bucks. She's like, well, that'd be enough. I'm like, well, how long are you going to be on for? She goes, you know, an hour. I'm like, yeah, okay, about five bucks an hour is about right. She's like, okay, here you go, you know, kind of babysit yourself. I'm like, great. Well, I take a quarter and I put it in. And the exploit was on Galaga. And it's still true to this day because you can go into emulators, you can try it, it still works. Is that if you take the two leftmost kind of, you know, blue and yellow kind of jacket, like space alien dudes, and you kill everybody except those two. And you let them be. And then you let them just dive bomb you repeatedly. They'll get in, they'll go into this loop and sometimes they'll fire, sometimes they won't. But as soon as they make four dive passes at you without firing, the game is stuck. It's broken. It's like, oh, like it doesn't detect anything's going on. And no wave will ever shoot you again forever. 
And so on one quarter, I could play for many, many hours and get to levels that you'd never see and all this mayhem, but it's okay. Nobody's ever going to shoot you. It's just, you have to avoid the dudes coming <laughs> down. And it was so fun. And again, I felt like I was stealing from somebody. It seems like I'm talking a lot of stories about stealing things. <laughs> I'm getting away with stuff. I, uh, I just took advantage and was clever and creative and was aggressive. And it, and it was just really my love of gaming is what, is what brought me there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Me and my brother used to always go down to the uh, local convenience store. Yeah. We had a couple arcade games there. Yep. And I uh, so many yep. memories. Just we would do the long track. We'd go load up on five cent candies. And then we'd just play <laughs> arcades for as much money as we had. And oh we'd head out. Yeah, it's good times. You, you know, my buddy and I, I, I used to spend the night at his house every weekend. My mom's like, you know, why don't you have Roy over sometime? I'm like, no, you know, I, you know, his mom cooks for us. And she's like, well, I'll curfew. And I'm like, like reality was he had no curfew. <laughs> and so like, I'm going to his house because we're going to go to the local convenience store as well. We're going to get the two liter bottle of Mountain Dew, a massive yes. bag of Swedish fish. And we're going to play Hogan's Alley and Mappy and, you know, all these just games that we loved as a kid. And, you know, again, it was kind of truant behavior tied to the love of gaming. And so it's always been part of my DNA. And again, the fact that I get paid to do this is somewhat of a, again, it's, I don't even know how to think about it other than I can't imagine doing anything else with my life and what I've done. I feel really fortunate. That's awesome. And we're going to talk about a lot of other things. But before we move on from just general gaming and stories from your past, mm-hmm. I'd love to know what your favorite video game is, if you've got one that sticks with you. Like coin-op, like old school retro coin-op? Or... Let's just go anything. Top game or three games, if you have a few you really can't pick from. Well, this is a whole other three-hour episode in of itself. <laughs> I'll Love try it. to keep it. I'll try to keep it really kind of topical. And so, so I think uh, I think League of Legends is my favorite game of all time since I played it more than any other game that I know of. I think that Final Fantasy XI, the MMORPG from Square, is kind of the, maybe the best designed game of all times, and it's really kind of under the radar. The Final Fantasy series and whatnot. It was. It's just like we could rat hole on that for a really long time. Um, I loved obviously John Madden football was so kind of impactful in my career. And I loved what it was all about. Um, so, you know, Madden, I think is, you know, has to be up there in the kind of the, the, the top 10. And then just, you know, from my childhood, uh, you know, I loved, you know, Dragon's Lair and I loved, you know, Pac-Man and I knew all the patterns. So that was a ton of fun and people would gather around and watch me play. There was a, there's another latest game called Go Go 13, um, or Cliffhanger, I guess it was based on the Go Go 13 IP, which is a Japanese comic book series. Like, there's a, there's a lot of love uh, for for what's going on, and and then I met one of my heroes, Mark Chamel, who designed NBA Jam and NFL Blitz, and those are two of my favorite games as well. I think they're just so brilliant, and there's all kinds of Easter eggs and funny things that he did with those products. That you know, uh, again, when you meet your heroes and they turn out to be great people, it also makes you love their IP that much more. So I would say, kind of those six or seven games really have imprinted on me in terms of kind of my personal taste. So. I love it. I love it. NBA Jam, that that one hits home with me too. That was a classic so for sure. So good. Um, awesome. Well, we've covered some of your favorite games. We've talked about some gaming stories. Hmm. If you could tie in your past, you've got decades of experience in the gaming space. How yeah. does that then tie forward to today and blockchain gaming? You know, what led you into that? And what were your initial impressions? And, and hmm. you know, how did you get to what you're doing today? My initial impression was I'm completely confused. Like I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to play anything. And I thought, and people are still doing this. Like, you know, you learn really quickly 
One of the really valuable lessons I learned when I was at the Walt Disney Company is we were building a game. It was a city builder. It was basically Disney Disneyland. It was called a Disney Dream Park and it never came out, but we were building it. And you started with an empty park and you'd buy a ride. It was kind of like, you know, theme parks, the old bullfrog game where you're like, oh, get tickets. And then that gets currency and then a different ride and then more people in build and rinse and repeat. This woman came in for this one-hour play session. It was not a folks who was usability testing. Hey, do you understand how to play this kind of stuff? She came in and she played it for 30 seconds. She's like, okay, I'm done. You know, can I go? We're like, wait, what? Like, we have a big webcast with a halo around her mouth. We're all watching her. Like, all over the kind of the Walt Disney world of, of studios, we're like looking at this woman very like this. A lot is riding on this. And the moderator is like, okay, yeah, you know, if you're busy, she's like, no, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've seen all I need to see. She's like, why? And she goes, look, I play literally about 12 free-to-play games every single day. Not a single one confuses me. Not a single one kind of doesn't inspire me. Like, I know why I'm there. I know what I'm doing. And there's these clear and obvious paths and progressions and aspirations. Like, this game, I've come in. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And I'm like, is, like, is this real powerful lesson, like, in free-to-play? Because there's no commitment to your product. So people can just leave right away, right? So the idea of free-to-play is like, well, get them in, get them interested. And then at some point, as they're engaged enough, they'll monetize. Like that lesson to me taught me about user journey and the importance of intuitive interfaces and, and really optimize the onboarding. Like get them in and show them why they're there. And so I came in that space and said, man, there's so much low-hanging fruit. Like, you know, everywhere you look, it's not only is it, you know, what wallet do you have? You know, what chain are you on? What is the DeFi product or the DAP you're looking to to engage with. Um, and then we speak to them in very five terms, you know, oh, you've got a deposit and do you know what the block emissions are? And there's a tokenomics report. Like all these non-gamer things are like friction, friction, friction. Everybody looked at friction. It's like, it, how are you going to get, you know, really mass adoption, which is the goal, right? Is how do we have mass adoption? And I'll tell you, for me, I looked at that and go, if I can be part of something as powerful as I play a game that I love and I get to own all my assets, like that to me was the thing that really spoke to me at my core. And I said, I want to do that. I want to lead the way. I want to show the world what a great gaming experience is, like a truly great gaming experience. Not a great blockchain gaming experience, but a great gaming experience. And I own all my stuff. I'm in. You know, you know when, when can I get started kind of thing, right? And so uh, we started with blockchain. We're all getting some real positive feedback and we're making people take notice and going, holy cow. That's not what I thought it was. And this is much better. And, you know, give me more of that and hurry up. I'm like, okay, those are all good signs. I want to dive into that idea a little bit further because, you know, we started the conversation talking about these nostalgic games and and hmm. probably even our listeners, the audience watching, you know, they think about their favorite game and it, it's those positive memories. And that's why we play games is for those right. experiences and for those right. memories. But right. now there's kind of a next level where... Not only do you potentially get that, but what you're earning through the game, there's a tangible asset there. Right. For any of our audience who's listening to this who maybe hasn't grasped that concept, can you kind of explain of how that's possible through blockchain gaming? Yeah, it's look, it's really simple. And I think there's a lot of fallacies that that we know to be true, that we are very realistic about this. This is not a, oh, I played this game for a month and now I've retired or I have a Lambo or yeah, like whatever, I quit my day job. Like that's not realistic and that's not scalable and that's not the future. The future is ownership of an asset and what you choose to do with it. If you play any game for N number of years, right? And you're like, I keep spending and spending and I know at some point I'll quit or I have nothing to show for it or they'll sunset it. Like that's really, you're like, you're almost like shaming yourself to keep playing. Like, well, I'm, I'm you know, I've got six years in, I can't quit now. Like, yeah, you can. 
but I feel so guilty because I have so much money. Like it's just such a terrible reason to keep playing something. Hmm. Now here's an idea that same gameplay, whether it's genre, category, what have you, progression loops, esports activity, you name it. Now all these things that you've acquired, you bought along the way, or you've traded for, or you've crafted, or have dropped for you, they're yours. And the blockchain allows that, right? Because these are non-fungible tokens that are open, you know, permissionless and trustless. Like they live on a distributed ledger. And so it's not like, oh, it's on a game server somewhere that the developer controls. And if they unplug that server, you're sure it's like, no, it's this asset that lives in perpetuity. And you bought it. So you own it. You want to sell it, you can sell it. You want to trade it, you can trade it. You want to keep it forever and never use it, you can do that as well. And the value of it will go up or down, but it's up to you to decide what to do with it. And, and that kind of distributed ledger, which is effectively what the blockchain is, allows for that to happen because it's not owned by the developer, it's owned by the player. And that's a really powerful pivot that publishers and developers hate and the gaming public should love because it really is removing that removing that experience outside of that walled garden. Something we've talked about when we've mm -hmm. had the opportunity, Wade and I, to talk with guests who have experience with blockchain gaming one of the common um, talking points that I've seen amongst gamers, it's in news headlines, and is that as much as, so you take the last question, you take your yeah. answer, and sure. you're talking about how great these things are for the gamers. Right. And for me, someone who's interested in blockchain and crypto and this technology, right. and what NFTs bring to uh, our digital ownership, I think right. it's so great. When I first heard this, I was thinking, this is awesome. This is this is going to be revolutionary for gaming. Right. But here it is. You see big studios implementing NFTs and it's like it's like NFTs are this <laughs> it's just like the worst thing the ever devil, to right. gamers. It's the devil. Right. And 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 so I got to ask like for you know people like you are saying it's great. People like me who's like I'm a gamer, I, I think right. it sounds great. Right. So right. why is it that gamers at large think it's so terrible. Why has that happened? Yeah, you know, not to get political, but in 2016, a candidate won the election. And one of the things he said in his acceptance speech, we did well with, you know, the, the poorly educated. We love the poorly educated. Right? Like he was saying, it was cute. And like, I was, we love the poorly educated. Like, that's a lot of what's going on here. Like, people aren't educated. You get mm -hmm. educated around the space. You're like, oh, I didn't know it was this. I wish somebody would have told me. The publishers and developers that aren't embracing Web3 have a real reason not to bring this message to the masses because it's a different business model. And when you change business models, it is an extinction event for a company or a studio. It is that simple. And this is the video game history. It is perfectly consistent on this point for the last 30 years. You can look at companies that try to make the jump from 8-bit to 16-bit. You can look at companies from 16 to 32, from disk-based games to cartridge-based games, to dedicated console products, to online products, or browser-based products. And then most importantly, and most salient to this crowd today, right, is from pay-to-play or freemium to free-to-play, right? Free-to-play, I had this exact same conversation. A friend of mine ran Worldwide Studios at EA, and I called him up and I said, I've got real religion around free-to-play. He goes, I don't start with that free-to-play garbage with me. I'm like, no, that's this is the future. He goes, all right, let me get this straight. You spend what? One, two, three, four million dollars in development. Yep. You've got no pre-sales because you got no retail. Yep. 99% of your audience will never pay you. That's right. And when that 1% does pay you, they're going to pay you 25 cents at a time or 49 cents or whatever the amount is. I said, yes, microtransactions. And you think that'll work? I do. And you think that'll scale? I do. You're crazy. We'll never do that. They're like, why not? 
Well, because it doesn't make any business sense. So a real funny story about EA. So, so at that time in 2012, I want to say, like Zynga was new on the scene and they were blowing up. They had a couple of years, a really good run. They were the darling of Wall Street. Pincus was a rock star and all that. You know, hoorah. They had Cityville, which had 100 million DAU, which is just incredible. 100 million daily active players. Like in your wildest dreams, you couldn't fathom that as, as a game developer, game producer. Like to this day, that still blows my mind. Like that's a real number, and it's hard to fathom that many unique players playing your product. EA, not to be outdone, run by John Riccatello at the time, he says, we're going to, you know, outperform Zynga, the darling of, you know, the, in, the investment community of the game world. So we're going to put out the Sim Social. Because The Sims is our biggest original brand. It's a lot like city building. It's decorating. You can you can draw the lines and see the connections. But they end up spending like you know anywhere between like fifteen to twenty five dollars per user to acquire the people to have the audience size that City built it. But they didn't have the economy. They didn't have the onboarding. They didn't have any progression. They have this is a massive commercial disaster. But it was a very EA way to do things. <laughs> we're going to go in with our biggest brand. And we're going to license it and block out the sun. And we're going to tell you how great we are. But we don't understand the core mechanics of the consumer experience. And we don't understand the core mechanics of the free-to-play business. So, it, so inside of six months, they literally shut the project down, which was just this holy cow. Meanwhile... Sims Tapped Out comes out, right? Which is free to play game, the license that EA, uh, there's a group called EA Partners. They take all these third party developed games and hey, we'll help you with publishing, we'll help you with UA. EA didn't publish it, they didn't really own it, but they sort of, you know, will be your publishing partner, your co promotional partner, right? So you saw with like Rovio and Angry Birds and Chilingo did do with EA. EA never developed Angry Birds, but they had a, they had a say in promoting it. So Simpsons Tapped Out was this group of literally like nine developers. Right, just out of nowhere, they said, "Hey, you know, you we know you have the Simpsons license, so we took all these Simpsons assets that we made ourselves, and if you have the rights, you know, we should put this game out there." They're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever." You know, EA Partners was very opportunistic, right? It wasn't the big first party, like, "Oh, we have to go through all these committees and all this stuff." So one day, my buddy, who told me free to play is dead and went to work, looks down at the Simpsons tapped out. This team of nine people, meanwhile, realized the Sim Social was a team of two hundred people. The Simpsons tapped out had nine people and they were doing a million and a half dollars in revenue a day. Wow. Goes, oh, How are you doing that? Like <laughs> just blows our mind. Like we don't, we don't get it. And so now all of a sudden the whole entire company is just like massive, you know, under the microscope. What are they doing? Right. What do they understand? How do they acquire you? All these things. Because again, this was the North star for them. This was the paradigm. And I went to lunch with him after that. And he tells me this Simpson tapped out story. He said, you'll see EA pivot to a mobile company that happens to do um, console games, like which is this huge pivot. You know, Andrew Wilson now was in charge and all that stuff. It was the post-Ricatello era. But it's this real thing like, they, but see, my point is they didn't understand the business model, right? They didn't understand the consumer, they didn't understand how it works. And if in their minds, it's much easier to figure out how to do 8% more revenue on what you're already doing. Like that's simple. I can do eight, I can be 8% better. That's opposed to, no, it's a whole new business. It's a whole new model. It's a whole new kind of purchase flow. It's a whole new monetization flow. You have to have a secondary marketplace. You have to have all these things. Like it's just like it's challenging, challenging for them, right? And we talk to these companies still to this day, these big established companies all the time, talk to them about kind of, you know, you should build on wax or you should, you know, give us your IP, we'll build for you. Or like all, we have all these conversations. And we continually hear the same argument. We're building this bulwark around a business model that is indefensible up against the sea change that is happening. They say, well, our consumers tell us they hate NFT. Well, have you tried to educate them? No. Why not? Well, because they've told us they hate it. So why do that? Like, it's, it, nothing makes sense, right? But, you know, the greatest motivator in life is fear of loss. 
And it's you'd, you'd want it to be hope for gain, but it's not. It's fear of loss. And people fear losing what they have. And so they don't want to make these fundamental changes in their business and how they operate. And the last thing I'll say on this is that, you know, you know, <clears throat> if you want to be successful in business, in any business, it takes courage. Courage is at the core of being successful. And at the core of courage is risk taking. Like if you're not courageous enough to take that risk, you'll never really succeed. And so just like in the free-to-play space, when EA didn't get into it, when Tencent didn't get into it, when Warner didn't get into it, when Activision didn't get into it, these native companies, Supercell, Zynga, you know, all these households, Scopely, King.com, you know, all these companies like came out of nowhere to generate hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue that got bought, right? Take two, we're going to buy Zynga, you know? Uh, you know, EA, we're going to buy, you know, insert, you know, you know, Apex, yeah, Respawn, right? Which is Apex Legends, right? Like all of these groups bought it because they didn't, they didn't have the wiring to understand how to work in that space. And we're going to see that in Web3 as well. When Web3 gaming blows up and becomes the thing that we all know it's going to be, and of that, I'm absolutely convinced. These established players are like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll take you now. Now that you've completely de-risked it and you understand what the North Star is and you built all that infrastructure, we'll buy you. And, and that's how they work. And that's how they've always worked. And that's why it is the way that it is. It's a great question. I'm sorry it's not a short answer. Um, but there's a lot to it. It's not just me saying, oh, well, they don't know and leave it at that. Like, there's a lot that that you have to understand as to why these guys are wired the way that they are. No, I'm, EA, it's a cushy, cushy place to work. It's a real comfortable ride. And you do not want anybody to take that away from you. So anything that threatens that is like, whoa, 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 slow down with your Web3 speak. We're not fancy owners <laughs> here. We make bad and we make sims and that's good enough for us. You know? No, I appreciate the the long form answer. It, it's mm -hmm. great to get into it. And I want to get into it more. So Yeah, we can. So putting it back again in the, the user's viewpoint. Mm -hmm. One thing that does, uh, that's crossed my mind that is a real concern is so let's say we are talking about um, a Web3 studio, Wax Studios, mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we're talking about um, blockchain gaming and, mm -hmm. and a game is created. Mm -hmm. And let's say it is a really mm -hmm. high quality game. And let's mm -hmm. say it actually truly is lots of fun to play and sure. gamers love it yeah is there still not a concern do we not know yet how the impact of digital collectible ownership will impact the game because now it becomes potentially due to human nature and greed mm. and mm -hmm. you know wanting to secure things that are actually worth something they're not contained in an environment like they are today in traditional gaming but maybe you can go take your skin that you've just acquired and you can go sell it on the aftermarket does that now turn the game into a game inside a game where now gamers are actually competing or they're playing just to earn versus playing to have fun is that a whole nother paradigm or challenge to overcome is that going to yeah, change how we approach you know, it's, it's, it's not right and the simple answer is whether you like it or not this has existed for 30 years and that's how we know this market is real like there was a story it probably predates your guys ability to remember such things but in like 1997 there was a house that sold an ultima online for three thousand dollars and the guy sold it on ebay and the other guy bought it and at the industry at that time nobody could believe it people were like what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you literally, like, clearly, like, this person is just off their rocker, right? And we thought, oh, that's the accepted rule. But more and more, we saw these things happening on a secondary market, eBay typically, 
a digital asset or ownership of an account, right, would get sold. I've got all these skins. I've clicked all these characters. I have all these weapons. I've unlocked all these levels. Like, this is for sale. And what would happen, the publisher's like, no, ban, 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 ban. Because they don't want you to do that. But then you look at World of Warcraft. You look at every role-playing game in the world, you get spammed in channel. You know, free gold or gold for this much, gold for this much. Like, so what that's saying is we're going to sell you a currency. They've gone out. These players have gone out and farmed that. And the players playing the game, they want that currency. Why do they want it? Well, how do you typically earn currency? Through grinding activities. Like, God, I've got to go harvest in, you know, <laughs> insert role-playing game of choice here, you know, World of Warcraft or, you know, New World or Lost Ark or whatever it is, right? Like for, for three hours, I've got to grind these mats and make these items and hope they sell in the auction house because I want the currency because I want to buy this thing. Like my time is way more valuable than three hours of grinding every single day to do my daily quest to do whatever I need to do. And so if... I want to have that choice. Like if as a player, if I want to grind, great. But I want to have the choice. And if another player has accumulated that and they want to sell it to me, I should be allowed to make that decision. And that happens and has happened, you know, since, you know, role-playing games could sell currencies. And they're always frowned upon. Those accounts were always getting banned because the developer does not want you to do that. But we know players want it, right? Mm -hmm. We know that without question. And this is really just legitimizing all that. And there's a great story that I told that I think is really more of a cautionary tale is that when Diablo 1 came out, like the ultimate, I was a sorcerer and the ultimate kind of, or Diablo 2, one of the two, I can't remember, Diablo 1, there was, it was called the Archangel's uh, Staff of the Armageddon. And it was like this most badass staff in the world. And people would get them dropped and then they would sell them to me, to the players. So the currency to buy them wasn't in-game currency. It was what's called a stone of Jordan, which is a plus one to all stats ring. And the price became 40 stones of Jordan, right? And you can't get 40 stones of Jordan to drop for you. It's just so rare. But you go to eBay, you buy the stones of Jordan, you get them delivered to you, you meet them in-game to get them picked up. And then you take your 40 SOJs and you go meet the person at the staff. And all the while in Diablo, you know, if you got jumped, you know, and you died because it was a PvP game, all your loot would drop. <laughs> like, it was just really dangerous thing. Like, I'm spending real-world money to get these Stones of Jordan to buy this staff with this all these in-game assets. And I wasn't the only one. I'm like, wow, you're crazy. Nobody else. No, everybody did. And everybody's worried. So what you'd end up doing is you'd have friends who are even higher levels than you accompany you to the sale, almost like some kind of drug trade. <laughs> It was unbelievable. like I'd show up literally two big giant barbarians wielding, you know, dual axes. And it's like, you know, I got my boys. Let's, are we going to do this? Okay. It's like the trade window goes open, you know, it's like, it's tense. You hear the music playing in the background and you go through, you're like, okay, exit. Like players have always wanted to do this. They wanted to have control over their assets and they wanted to have control over their time. Web3 technology allows for both those things to happen in broad daylight where it's safe, it's open, it's permissionless, it's trustless, and you're good to go. Ulf, do you realize our audience has been either watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No, they should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment and turn on notifications. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. So go check out the episode description. You can find all that information below. And we have an update on the NFT, don't we? That's right. We didn't previously mention this, but this NFT for OG supporter is a one of one. There will only be one of this kind ever minted. And we have a few surprises for the person who purchases it. The link is in the episode description. And back to the episode. So 
What I'm curious about is why Wax? Why is Wax the ideal blockchain to have gaming on? Can you kind of break that down for us? I would ask you, give me one other chain that I should even contemplate building on. That's a better question. Why not Wax? So some of the, obviously like Ethereum is way too expensive with with all the gas fees, everything like that. I I wonder about some of the the layer two solutions on top, like a Polygon or something like that. Okay, so uh, so if we look at if we look at Polygon, you, what is their transactional velocity, right? What is Wax's transactional velocity? We do eight thousand to ten thousand transactions a second. Mm. And if you're a gamer and you buy something, you want it immediately because most of us gamers buy stuff when we're mad. We just got killed. Yeah, with my BFG nine thousand, I want to win right now. God damn it! You know, it's like, well, you <laughs> you'll get it in three hours. Like. What, a cooling, like a digital cooling off period? Like, what is that? Like, there's this immediacy, right? This expeditious nature in which gamers want. Like, I bought something, I want something. I want to level up. I want to beat this boss. I want to get past this pinch point, whatever it is. And a lot of times, it's very understood you pay for the right to do that. Even if you look at people who play Candy Crush, it's like, oh, it's such a casual game. Like, no, they're buying power-ups because they want to get past that one level that has frustrated them for four straight days. Right? Like we always pay to advance. And so that's a very known thing. Now, if you're delaying that gratification, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's kind of just a non-starter for a gamer. And the thing that you you'll find with Wax and the things that we build and the things we do and the things we say and the things that we can demonstrate is we are trying very hard with every single kind of product that we feature that we deploy, it's making it feel like the current gaming experience. Right. So it's I bought something, I bought it in-game and I have it immediately. Right. So one of the things we deployed in a blockchain brawlers was a secondary market. It's not you have to shell to a different browser or a different window or a different whatever. Like, no, it's just in the game. And that's all the things that everybody in the world is selling, but we've consumed an API and it's right there. It's native. You don't have to leave anywhere, click it. And because wax transactions are so quick and so like voluminous, like you get it right away. It's like, oh cool. I bought it and there it is. Oh good. That that feels like other games that I play that aren't on the blockchain. Right. That's the thing is is you talk about kind of the trepidation of the existing audience and how do we reach out to them and how do we resonate with them? First of all, we never mentioned blockchain. We never mentioned cryptocurrencies. We never mentioned web three. We're like, here's a fun to play game and you get to own all your stuff. Like, oh, cool. They come in, they play it, they see there's this free-to-play funnel. They get in there, oh, I really love it. You know, I've got my credit card out. I want to, I want to love it even more. Like, swipe, and there you go. It's like, oh, by the way, these are all NFTs that you own. Like, wait a minute, no, NFTs are terrible. What do you mean? I own <laughs> what do I do with it? Well, you can sell it. Okay, tell me more. Or you get a friend. <laughs> oh, really? Wait a minute. Well, I get my account banned. No, you won't. Like, oh, I really enjoy playing this game and I get all my stuff. And yet we never once said it's Web3. Like if you leave with Web3, if you leave with blockchain, if you leave with crypto, right away, I think their defenses goes up. So that acceptance rate goes way down. But if you say, hey, here's a really fun to play game that looks, sounds, acts, and feels like what you're doing already, but it's a better use of your time. That's how we're going to really convert the 3 billion gamers in the world that are out there. And we know that 3 billion people spend $171 billion last year and don't own anything, right? So you have to think there's a ton of upside of if if not making profitable or even breaking even, at least subsidizing subsidizing your gaming costs are really, really important. I can't argue with you at all on the fact that hiding the technical aspects of the blockchain from the average gamer is a great idea, right? Like, right. let's not let's not bog them down with having to learn a whole new 
complex technology in order to get behind this stuff. Let's just make it work. Let's have great UIs, great user experience, all that. But to Wade's question about, um, you know, about why, why wax? Mm -hmm. Well, we've heard Vitalik and many other people, they bring it up often around when you, when you're comparing different blockchains, mm-hmm. that there's the, 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 the trilemma around security, scalability and decentralization. Now, to your point, maybe to the average gamer, they don't need to know about any of that. But right. for those who are more concerned about those things, when they're thinking about blockchains too, build on or when decentralization is maybe important to them mm-hmm. you know where's the trade-off when it comes to wax is there a trade-off how do you answer that question yeah look there's not right and i i hate to sound like i'm you know <laughs> you know telling the company line but the reality is, is wax was first built very few people realize that wax was first built for like two months on ethereum and william quigley and jonathan yantis the founder said this Technology actually can't handle the amount of volume of, of NFT trading and, and distributed ledger kind of updates that we need for it to be a game-centric chain. Like it was always built first and foremost, this is going to be the chain that drives gaming in the future. Like they mm-hmm. built it with that in mind, not like, oh, well, here's distributed ledger. How can we retrofit it to gaming? Like it's all about transactional velocity and volume and scalability. So scalability is, again, nobody does more transactions on a daily basis than we do. So we do kind of north of anywhere between 20 and 30 million transactions a day, which is more than every other blockchain in the world combined, right? So we know we can scale and we know we have audience and we know we have, you know, again, completed transactions are, yeah, again, we do like 52% of every blockchain transaction of every DeFi collection game. You name you add up all the things that change the ledger on a daily basis, more than half of them are done on wax. Like that's just indisputable. It's third party, you know, you know, data sites. It's not us. And, you know, even those numbers are somewhat low because to comb the data and to query the blockchain because of all the amount of transactional volume that we do, it's actually really expensive for them to get a real complete reporting. So actually the numbers are being underreported. Um, we don't say that as a source of pride. That's just kind of matter of fact, right? So that's one is we do more transactions than anybody else in the world. If you look at our DAU count, you know, like we're the most used blockchain from a daily active user standpoint. We have more daily active users than, than Binance, than all those other chains. So we have audience, we have transactional capacity, we have scalability, and now we have great projects on a chain that was built for gaming. It's sort of like, again, you know, why not Wax? And, you know, Wax has never been down. Like our friends at Solana, God bless them. We know them, we love them. Our chain's never been down. Our chain has never been hacked in that regard. Like we don't put out bridges that are insecure. Like we don't have the same problems that other groups have been burdened by. And again, they get, you get a lot of attention when it goes down or when it doesn't go down. But for us, that's just business as usual. Like, yep, we're up again. Yep, another 23 million transactions a day or 27 million transactions a day. It's just very matter of fact. And, you know, we're not, the sexiest company in the world, but we just perform. And we think if we do our jobs and perform, then everything will take care of itself. Now we have to bring great content to this infrastructure that we built, which is what we're absolutely doing right now. So talking a little bit about that content, for people who might not be aware of some of the, maybe even the NFTs and the the gaming experiences on Wax. I mean, you mentioned blockchain brawlers. Can you dive yeah. a little bit more into that? And then I also understand that, like, weren't there like Street Fighter NFTs at one point and different things like that? Can you dive into that? Yeah, yeah so Street Fighter as a collection came out in February 2021. It was really the first kind of digital collectible NFT that had any kind of utility or upgradability to it. Like, we've heard all about the different collections, but Street Fighter was a collection that you could combine Ryu's and Ken's and 
Giles and Blancas and whoever your favorite characters were. And then you could get upgraded versions of or more rare versions of those same things. And it became like this metagame that like, these are just digital collectible trading cards. And this is well before kind of, you know, what what, what people used to refer to as PDOE gaming. This was just, you know, collectibles, right? And so we really pioneered this whole collectible thing with an upgrade path. And it caught everybody by surprise. And as quickly as that came in, it kind of went away as well. We realized that you have to have NFTs with real meaningful utility and there has to be a real game there. So we had game-like u- utilization of game assets, right? These char- the character art, which was gorgeous. Um, but yet there was no real kind of there there. And so um, that was really popular. And you know we have a great relationship with Capcom still to this day. And we're still trying to figure out how to take NFTs and, and talk to them and work with them about kind of access or passes. Because again, NFTs a lot of times can be used as keys to things, right? So affinity programs, loyalty programs are going to start using NFTs all the time. You know, ticket sales, we've heard about that. We've heard about ties to music. But the point on, um, you know, the whole notion of content is people really want to, you know, there's been a lot of, I think a lot of narratives that have been published and talked about, about like, oh, this is how it's going to work. And they're actually, you know, terrible stories, right? Like Axie Infinity was the darling of the media for so long and Shattered Lands and so forth and so on. But if you look at the projects that have sustained, right? If you look at the top of the charts, it's a lot of wax projects. It's Alien Worlds. It is, uh, it is, it is our planet. It's blockchain brawlers. It's things that have a different kind of mindset in terms of kind of what is their economy inside of their game. What do they do, right? And how do they work. In fact, if you look at the top ten projects by a user count standpoint, I think three of them are on Wax. So again, it's like Wax is you know the biggest chain in the world, and it's got the most users, and it's got the most users in the most games. So it's like like by every measure, and it doesn't really matter how you slice it. Like we shine and compare unbelievably well to everybody else. And sorry, yeah, and to the the second part of that question is, let's get into blockchain brawlers a bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what is blockchain brawlers? Why go check it out? You know, where is it now versus where it's going? Right. Uh, unfortunately, we're a little bit in a kind of a dead period right now. We did a mining phase after mining phases were a thing. So we missed the curve there, but we looked at it as, okay, we're going to distribute our in-game currency. We're going to distribute a billion tokens to our players and you can mine it and you use NFTs to mine it. You use gear and rings and it'll feel like brawling, but it's not really a Twitch-based brawling. It's a, it's a clicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we missed the clicker wave. So kind of hindsight's 2020. I probably wouldn't have launched the clicker version of it when we did. I probably would have held it until we come out with the full version, which is in a few weeks here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we said, the players are like, well, wait a minute, what do we do if we can't mine any more currency? I'm like, will you wait? <laughs> Well, we don't want to wait. Well, then fine. Then don't mine as much. Well, just give us more to mine. No. Like, we're going to go from this inflationary economy to a deflationary economy, right? And everything we do going forward is going to try to put you know, kind of pressure on the token price by creating an additional utility that, that's meaningful. And so blockchain brawl is what it is. We always said, right? We said from day zero, we're going to build a real game. We're going to start with a mining phase. Then we're going to have a crafting phase, kind of build those foundations for Then we're going to have a PVP phase. And so we're about to hit the crafting phase in less than two weeks. That'll run in perpetuity. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to launch the PVP phase, which is player versus player brawling. I'm like, okay, great. That sounds like something I'm used to. Um, well, it is sort of. The twist for us, which is really cool and really compelling is, well, this is a browser-based game. So you can't really build a lot of really good kind of 60 hertz 
kind of, you know, Twitch-based arcade action games in a browser with a keyboard. Uh, it's just not a great, it's not a great setup, so to speak. I mean, you can do it, but it'd be very niche. So what we said is, well, what works well? Turn-based works well. And so card games work well. We've looked at Sky Reaver and, you know, all these other great games that, have, you know, but so we went to the king of all trading card games. We went to Richard Garfield. And we said, hey, we're Wax, and we make NFT-based games, and we'd like to do something with you. He goes, I hate NFTs. They're terrible. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is really going well for us. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Um, and after a couple of phone calls where we really got to tell our story and what we believe, right? Because when you have alignment of beliefs, it makes things easier. When we said, look, this is Wax. We're, we're carbon neutral by a, you know, a million times over, and we're a delicated proof of stake, which is much better than proof of work. It's what proof of work means. And you know, we don't really kind of think about things the way other people do. And this is the game we're building and everything we're doing is to reward the community and allow them to buy and sell their assets, which is something he's very familiar with, right? So if you look at Magic the Gathering, which he just famously designed, you know, the, the trading card volume, 22 billion cards, I think, are the other day have traded hands from players. And that's very much what we're after. So we align a lot with kind of his, his, his kind of the core of who he is. And so he said, just curious, I, he's, I'm like, look, a trading card game makes a ton of sense. He's like, it does. And I've got no time for that. And just the balance that takes about a year. Forget building it, just to balance it. He goes, because it's so much complicated math. You can't understand the permutations of, you know, every single deck type, card type, attack, defense, and mana system, whatever. He goes, it gets so complicated, it spirals really quickly. And he said, a year just to balance that. He said, but what I do have, he said, <clears throat> he said, I have a game that I've been working on just as a prototype for the, like the last year. And if it's of interest to you, and if you think you can put a wrestling wrapper around it or a brawler's wrapper around it, he said, you should look at it and see. I'm like, you have a game that you've designed that has no home, and you're asking me if I think I'll like it. Like, you're <laughs> Garfield. Like, this is incredible. Like, this, like, fell into my lap. And I said, okay. And so I read the game design doc, and I didn't understand it. Uh, and I'm usually pretty good at understanding game design docs. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. I'm like, I mean, it seems interesting. He's like, well, I've got a prototype. It's going to be done in a week or two. So he sent me the prototype. And he and I played head-to-head. <laughs> and when you read the initial pressure, you're like, oh, this is kind of boring and lame. And then you start to play and you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. But then about two to three games in, you have this moment where it's like this total epiphany. You're like, oh my God, Richard Garfield is a diabolical genius. Like, <laughs> yeah, and a layer complexity, it's subtle. And now I'm at this decision point where I start to understand how to play the game, but how to win is very different. I'm like, oh, oh, you know, it's like, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, okay, let's go. You know, like that kind of thing. And that's what that, that's what the RPVP game is. It's this card game that looks and sounds a lot like war, but then you think, no, it's more like Texas Hold'em. And then you go, no, it's like Guts. If you ever played Guts, the college gambling poker game where it's like match the pot or not kind of, like it's a lot of those things. And it's this beautiful blend of all of that. And it's not a trading card game, right? It's very much a different thing, but it is a card game. Right. And so the notion of reading your opponent in what is the situation, like all these things come into play and how much, what is your tolerance for risk? And like all this stuff, it's just this beautiful thing. And so when you do moves in the game, you're, you win your hand or whatnot, like you'll be able to then choose to move, do moves in the ring. So in the background of the card game, your, your guy that you own, your NFT is brawling and he's whipping ass on his opponent or he's getting his ass whipped. But then when you win a hand, then you have a set of moves that you've traded, crafted, or collected for that are really over the top and really, really cool. It's like, you know, celebrity deathmatch meets Looney Tunes. Like it's just so much a visual spectacle. Well, I would say it's got to be as much fun to watch as to play. So that's how these things are coming together. And we did an op a closed beta this last weekend. We ran it for four days, actually, Thursday to Thursday to Monday. And 
to the consumers, like, they're like, oh my God, this is so unexpectedly great. It has mm. that one more game. I've been saying one more game for the last three hours. I can't get enough of this. I'm like, yeah, once you get it and you really get it. So we think we're onto something like literally 95% kind of approval rating, 90, 92% approval rating, 95% would say they'd recommend it to their friends. 89% said it's strategically interesting and deep. So we're really hitting some high marks with the consumers completely. Like they have no reason to, you know, tell us this is, you know, great. Like <laughs> we don't have much sway over our audience. Mm-hmm. Lead anonymous survey and they opted in and said, yeah, this is great. And when can it, when, when is it coming back? <clears throat> so yeah, there you go. I love it. It sounds super, mm-hmm. honestly, it sounds like the kind of game I'd be super into. <laughs> like I love, I play a lot of strategy games. I'm okay yeah. with games that are, you know, think about it, make your move type of thing. Yeah. So yeah. it sounds like a lot of fun. And to your point about the artwork and like being able to watch the animations, I already think, I mean, you guys are off to a great start with the look and feel of blockchain brawlers. The artwork's amazing. So I am, I'm now anxiously awaiting the the PVP <laughs> to come live so I can give it a shot myself. You know what? It's going to be out. Um, it's going to be out on the 19th of September or 20th of September. We're going to do uh, what we call an open beta. So it's not the full game. It's not tied to your wallet. It's just we want to get in now as many players as we can because we're making four important you know, balance changes to the rules. Uh, Rich, one of the things he said is get this in front of as many people as you possibly can to get a read on if there are different emerging metas, if it's one strategy is more powerful than the other, you know, how do you balance out? Are, you, are there enough strategic choices? And so kind of part two of that before we go live is this kind of this open beta test. It's free to try. It's free to play. You don't need your wallet. Just show up and, and, and rock and roll and see what you think. So we're doing that in like, oh, less than three weeks. You can come on in and tell us what, what you believe. Nice. I love it. I love it. And so a question that spins off of this, I mean, uh, you know, hopefully blockchain brawlers goes mainstream at some point, but never mind blockchain brawlers. What about blockchain gaming as a whole? When do you think we will be able to overcome this, you know, big barrier that gamers have put up? When will it go mainstream? When will that education part be there? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's, it's coming and kind of, it's not if, but it's when. Uh, I've kind of been all over the map in terms of what my predictions are. I used to think it was going to come really, really quickly. And then I thought it's going to come much later. Now I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I, I think in the next three years, I would say call it by 2025, 2026, right in there. There won't be a single game that comes out that won't have an element of, you know, ownership, of asset ownership in there. I believe believe that for a bunch of reasons. One is, I think well before that, North Star will be built. And hopefully, and I think it's blockchain and was like, oh, that's what you mean when you say Web3 gaming. Like, oh, okay, I get it. Oh, I own my stuff. Now I understand. Like a lot of times people are visual learners. They have to opt into an experience. They have to realize it's not terrible. It's not draconian. It's not kind of, you know, again, nuking the rainforest, so to speak. It's, It's this wonderful thing, right? And once we put forth a path of, Kind of what does the economy look like? What does onboarding look like? How do you get people to open up a wallet, which can be a very confusing process and a very different process. Once that North Star is in place, other groups will copy and clone and improve, right? That, that's how it works in gaming all the time. But the other thing I know uh, without fail is a lot of my friends from the industry who have built many, many AAA games in their career have shifted over to Web3 games, right? And their titles are set to come out kind of end of 2023 or, you know, kind of first half of 2024. So there's really, really big, heavily invested kind of projects coming out from really high-end developers that are going, holy cow, 
Had I known it was this, I would have gotten the space much sooner. But it's going to take those things, right? It's going to take a North Star. It's going to take AAA development. It's going to take great content. And again, the thing of it is, is that you need to give people a better use of their free time. Right now, if like, like the, the lady at the Disney, you know, kind of you know, user group said, look, I, I don't need to play anything else. I'm perfectly content. You know, your game bores me. It confuses me. I don't, I don't need to be bored and confused. I have things that I love to do already. Like, we have to find a place in the rotation, so to speak, right? We've got to knock something else out of people's daily. Like, it's not like people are like, wow. It's not like people are going around like, I have nothing to do. It's like, no, they all always have something to do. Like, free time is super valuable. So we have to give them a better use of their free time. We have to validate that choice because your free time is your most valuable commodity. It's also your most limited commodity. What's interesting about your timeline is that, I mean, there's a lot of different predictions out there. Nobody knows, but it could possibly coincide with a lot of what people think could be the next bull run. Do you think that has any impact on like crypto market, like prices going up? Will that impact blockchain gaming? I I candidly don't. I have a little bit of a, a bit of a hot take. Like I could care less what the could not care less what the price of Bitcoin is or Ethereum is. Yeah. Like, I really I couldn't care any any less than I already do. Like people say, oh, Ethereum's down, Web three gaming's gonna die. I'm like, no, Web three <laughs> games about ownership. Yeah. You're like, right, but ownership is tied to NFT utility. NFT utility is tied to NFT appreciation. NFT appreciation is tied to token stability, tied to token appreciation, tied token is tied. Yeah, somewhere down the line, it all makes sense. But the real aha moment is I get to own my stuff. And mm. people right now are paying a ton of money for things that they never will own. So, and that doesn't matter if Bitcoin is trading at $100,000 a coin or if it's $10,000 a coin. Like gamers are buying things in mass. $171.8 billion last year alone. Wow. And they didn't own a single penny of it. And they couldn't sell it. They couldn't do anything with it. Now we're saying, imagine a shift where every single game that gets played, you get to own it. And you're maybe not profiting from it, but you're probably subsidizing it. And now you're gaming for less, which makes you going to spend more. And the nice thing for the community is, or the gaming as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, a, a group of people like that's going to attract way more people to the space. Oh man, games are such a waste of money. Well, not anymore. Well, not as much of a waste of money if you think it's a waste. Like it's a tipping point for some people. Like, oh, cool. And the thing that people don't talk about a lot that I always make sure that I mention is that the philanthropic angle of I'm giving you something that you know has value and I know has value, but I'm giving it to you. I'm gifting it to you. Opposed to, here's a game that has no value to me. I mean, maybe it's got some amount of value because it dropped for me during a raid. No, I got, I rolled on and I won and I'm going to give it to you like, good for me. But now I'm actually giving you an item that has a real world currency tied to it. Mm-hmm. And that makes me feel good about me. And you know, I'm giving you something that has value. So that makes you appreciate me more, but I'm giving this to you. Everybody's like, oh, you can sell it. You can make a ton of money or you can make some money. Like, or you can give it to somebody as a gift. Because, you know, there's certainly a part of us somewhere deep down inside all of us. Hopefully there's social good, right? And like, look what I did for my friend. Or look what I did for my, 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 my guild mate, right? Who I've never met in real life. But I gave them something that was worth $3 or it was $10 or it was $100. I gave it to them and I feel really good and they feel good. And that tightened our bond. And now we're gaming together because we love to game. And the reason why you give that to people is so you can short circuit their, their learning curve. Like, you know, you know, Wizard or Blizzard 
intelligently started like level 55 now is your starting position for World of Warcraft when the level cap was 80. It wasn't one. They wanted people to play at closer ranges. And this, you know, kind of gifting of items allow of really powerful items allow you know players to play at a much closer level sooner, right? So we can game together because ultimately we all want to game together, right? That's the best, that's the best way to play any game in the world is collectively with other people who also enjoy it. So Michael, you talked about some of the the numbers that people are spending on games and they have zero ownership. And one thing I wonder as well is, do you think that will even amplify more when you do have that ownership for a couple of reasons? One, you know, as things like metaverse develop and like acknowledgement of NFTs and social media websites having the options to showcase these NFTs and all of those sorts of things, right now people are kind of buying these cosmetic in-game assets for the flex, the digital flex. Do you think that the digital flex increases over time and therefore the spend goes up as well? I think the short answer is I think yes, Hmm. right? Like people, people love to peacock. That's, that's, (laughs) that's been around for the entirety of human history, right? Uh, sometimes it helps with breeding. Sometimes it helps with protection. Like there's all these reasons why we as, as a species have always, you know, try to portray ourselves as, you know, kind of maybe bigger than what we really are. Like that's not going away. Um, and if anything, the metaverses and the interoperability, hopefully between metaverses, that allow you to take these assets and go from world to world to world will just increase the value of it. Uh, the thing that I will tell you that I know for a fact is that these asset creators are leaning into scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. And so scarcity is a thing. It's a thing on every single market. You look for certain traits, you can search by certain tags of certain things. Like we know that scarcity matters. And we know that when you don't have a control on scarcity, then it's a race to the bottom. And so your asset becomes worthless. So consumptive items or items tied to scarcity are things that, you know, developers are working towards more so than ever. So I think it can only, I think it only get increased over time. And I think that, you know, experiences allow people to flex like that, um, you know, are absolutely going to become uh, even more prevalent. A real small example on blockchain brawlers. I put out a survey about six weeks ago saying you can upgrade a finishing move or you can upgrade an attack or you can upgrade a taunt. Which one are you going to upgrade first? And taunt was third by a mile. Nobody wanted taunt. But coming out of this playtest, everybody was in Discord taunting and jawing and talking smack to each other. <laughs> and I said, so I thought you guys weren't going to like, upgrade your taunts. Like, well, what kind of taunt can I do? Like, you can teabag, you can do the throat swing, you can do the double bird, you can do the kiss my ass. Like, oh my God, I want all those things. All of a sudden, because they were flexing, right? They were showing off. They were shaming their opponent with something they very much wanted to do. Meanwhile, they have the audience something nobody cares about cosmetics. Nobody's going to buy a cosmetic. Like, well, tell, you know, Fortnite did $5 billion in aesthetic sales last year. Don't tell me nobody cares about aesthetics. That's the dumbest argument in the world. Like, you know, League of Legends built a whole business around the skins business. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous when people say nobody cares about cosmetics. You don't care about cosmetics. I get that. Other people do. I promise you. Yeah. And once upon a time, I started my, uh, we'll call it professional career, getting out of the restaurant industry <laughs> and into something else. And right. I, I was working for Disney prior to... Oh, sure. this, so it was Club Penguin before oh, right. they were Kelowna, before they were actually yeah, yeah Kelowna, right? Oh, so, Lane and all those guys, right? Yeah, course, yeah. Course, so before they were even acquired by um, right, Disney, and right, at the time, right, right. at the time, free to play was that like it was very new at the time, especially like with a, a, a kid centric focus. Yeah. Um, but I mean, their game 
blew up and it was and yeah Club Penguin. and it was all yeah, I may because have helped, of i may have helped my kids jackhammer on the iceberg looking to get rock hopper i think uh, yeah, right? oh yeah rock hopper <laughs> definitely I'm right there with you absolutely <laughs> but even in a game like that especially yeah. i mean like i'm going back in time now but a it's funny bit. because because it was a children's game right there there was never going to be any fighting there was never right. going to be any traditional like there was no shooting there was no killing there was no of your traditional what you think of in like like a like a video game it was just walk around and talk with your friends and maybe mm -hmm. you know go down the slide and stuff like I, that. I know it very well. Absolutely. Yet they crushed it because right. everybody wants cosmetics. It doesn't even matter if you're a kid or an adult. Cosmetics are well, huge. Well, the, the thing too, when your six-year-old daughter looks up to you and goes, Daddy, can I have your credit card? When you're at a retail store, you're like, no. Yeah. But she's like, oh, Daddy, can I like club him? Of course you can. Here you go. And I'll help you, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it was a very, because I saw how much joy it gave her, right? And of course, me being a gamer, of course, I want to fuel that frenzy so to speak her mom's like what are you doing i'm like trust me i got this um <laughs> but yeah no look it was you're right it was all cosmetics and she loved what allowed her how it allowed her to be perceived in a world of people that she never even met and mm -hmm. did not even know mm -hmm. right she loved that about that experience right and she was um she played for a couple of years and again those again we see these things at very early stages in life and those patterns and behaviors rarely change Mm -hmm. right so yeah there so we're getting to the end of this but mm -hmm. i asked you the question around when blockchain gaming will yeah. go mainstream and yeah. we did a little prediction there i've got another prediction question but this time we're going to go a little further out okay and that is not about when it will go mainstream rather let's just gaze a little further and say 10 mm -hmm. years from now you know you guessed three to go mainstream three or four right. Right. so 10 years out what does gaming look like as a whole? How has it changed and where are we in the world of blockchain gaming? Yeah, I think gaming will have changed a lot. I think there'd be a lot more mass audience adoption. I really do. I think probably more than half the planet will classify themselves or characterize themselves as a gamer. Mm. Right now it's 3 billion on what, 9 billion people I think in the world. I think you know, in 10 years, I think more than half the population will be gamers. I, the people who are dying out weren't gamers. The ones who are being born now are being born into, into gaming and gaming is better and more accessible than ever before. So kind of more than half the planet will be gamers. The revenue will be, you know, kind of really, really appealing. And what I hope you see is I hope you see real Real kind of so the the thing that I was really inspired by, or the thing that I really love is as much as I hate Instagram um, and understood what YouTube was once upon a time, what you realize really quickly is these are platforms for launching content creators, right? Some of the best you know musical artists and movie makers these days were discovered through their content on the platform that is YouTube. Like, no, YouTube's supposed to watch highlights from like no, 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 YouTube is a platform. Like Instagram is a platform. Like this is where people are go to be seen and heard. And they really fuel this creator economy. You know, Twitch is the same exact thing. I hope these metaverses tied to Web3 gaming experiences really lean into the UGC part. Because I think there's going to be some incredibly talented artists and creators, whether it's game designers and they're working with a series of, you know, modding tools or it's artists building, you know, wearable things that are inoperable. Like, I feel like these, this Web3 based technology and, 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 and gaming at its core will allow for people to really express themselves through these platforms of creation. And I hope that's what happens because anytime you crowdsource creativity, man, incredible stuff takes place. It really does. And so um, giving people access and the tools to do things really, really well and see how clever they are. It's like, I'm always blown away. Oh, this person shot this on, you know, an iPhone 6. 
wait a minute, we're on iPhone 14. I was like, right, look what they did. It's like, oh my God, well, why? Well, they're in Sub-Saharan Africa and they just got iPhone 6s there. And But that, now how broadband ever, it's like, oh, it's so Like all those things allow to happen when you allow the world to lean in and kind of, you know, share what they do. Michael, this has been such a fun conversation. We like to end every episode of Show Me the Crypto with the same three questions we ask every guest. It's a segment we call, you had me at crypto and it's a little more crystal ball gazing. Alf's going to ask you those questions. Sure. All right. The first question, who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say it wasn't William Quigley. He's a seer in the industry. He's so smart. Every time I talk to him, I feel like I'm, if I spend five minutes talking to him, I feel like I'm an hour smarter. (laughs) So uh, William Quigley is the man. There's no doubt about it. Love it. Second question, and I already know you're going to hate this one (laughs) because you said you really don't care. But what will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? So we are... Two, how many happenings, right? That's what I'm counting. Yeah. There's a couple, uh, yeah. maybe three. three. Maybe three. 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 I, you know, I, I think it's very possible that we're at kind of north of half a million hmm. uh, per coin. I think that's probably in play if you look at the exponential growth. I love it. I love it. We've had a lot of mixed answers to that recently. Yeah. So I like that. This is a higher one for recently. This is a high uh, bear market prediction yeah, compared to right. Yeah. Right. low well, bull I, market. I, 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 believe, I believe in the fundamental issue of banks going away and kind of distributed currencies being going to rule the day and all that fun stuff. So they'll figure out all the security and the usability issues by that time that'll get broad adoption. All right. What's the most underrated coin or project in all of crypto? And we can't say, and and no project you're working on, no wax. We got to go underrated. Underrated. Um, I will tell you a game that I love that is under the radar from just an awareness standpoint is a game called Metropolis Origins. And Metropolis Origins is developed by this group called QXR Studios. And if you look at the roster of QXR Studios, it's a total who's who of the classic gaming world. It's the writer of Bioshock. It is the creator of Seventh Cast, Eleventh Hour, Quake Arena. Like, and you, like, you realize there's real talent building this. And then when you look at the art assets, there's this really cool painterly noir art style, uh, a CCG, but tied to a deep lore. And it's a really complex game design. Like, it's so good at what it does. And from an execution standpoint, and nobody knows about it yet. Um, but they will, I hope, in the next kind of three to four to five months, I think that's really going to uh, catch people off guard. Like, holy cow, this is a Web3 game. Yeah, it's a game and it's on Web3. So cool. We'll have to check that out. Michael, it's been such an honor having someone like yourself with so much experience, fun conversation. And I think, you know, We've talked about Web3 gaming and blockchain gaming on a couple other episodes, but having someone who's kind of seen the evolution and has so much conviction of where things are going to go, it's inspiring. So I think this is going to be a great episode for a lot of people to check out. Thank you so much for joining Ulf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Yeah, Wade. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. I've a lot of fun. Have me anytime. I'll, I'll, I'll clear my schedule. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.